scripture tells us we love him because he first loved us. And we wrap up a sermon on God's sovereignty, how God is in charge of everything, uh, from the big to the small and every detail in between. And and, uh, to wrap this up, I'd like us to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, verses 21 through 24. Luke 10, 21 through 24. And God's word says this. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Help us. Help us to think and understand and, and by your Holy Spirit, uh, teach us, convict us, encourage us. Let us know how to live in, in light of your awesome, loving sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen. So about 10 weeks ago, we started this sermon series on God being sovereign. Uh, wanted to look at it and really explore the depth of who God is, the greatness of God. And the culminating point is then, what is our attitude toward us when we understand God's sovereignty? What should be our attitude toward the sovereignty of God? But even more than that, what will be our attitude? As God has saved you and shows you more and more about himself, what, what does he do in our hearts as we respond to this? And so there are five things this morning that are pointed out uh, by, by some pretty good, godly, wise people. Um, and one of those things, the first things is our attitude toward God and his sovereignty must be and will be one of godly fear. Godly fear, an attitude of godly fear a fear toward God. If God is sovereign, if God is in charge of everything, what's what's our response? It's an attitude of godly fear. Listen to Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. A description, perhaps even, of the world in which we live. He goes on to say, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their uh, ways are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Why is the world like this 
in Paul's world. And why is it like ours? The next verse sums it up. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If we knew there was a God, if we saw there was a God, if we could see God is everywhere, but as we shut God out as a culture and a society, even sometimes in our own Christian lives, uh, we're almost too busy to stop and think about God, we think. Uh, If there's a fear of God, there is a change in behavior. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fearing God, it's a healthy respect for God. God is everywhere. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. I look back to some of my days growing up, and, and boy, it just it's like, man, those fundamentalists, those, those things. But you know, there was something as I look back on it, I had a friend, and, and his dad didn't want him listening to some things and, and getting the world's culture soaking through him. It was just an AM radio, but his dad had one of those old, remember those things you feed through and you, you punch and you turn the wheel, and those little label makers, those little label makers. And I hopped in the car to ride with him, and right above his car radio was, Thou God seest me. And his dad put that there just as a reminder that God's watching him. They used to tell us in Bible college, uh, when you go out on a date, you're, you're going out with this girl and you want to behave and you want all that, just take your Bible and put it in the seat because they didn't have bucket seats then. Put it in the seat between you and her. And that way both of you will, uh, you know, stop with the hanky-panky and all that. We heard all that stuff. And as a kid, sometimes it just seemed like you're just trying to scare me with the thoughts of God. You're just trying to scare me. But the fact of the matter is, God sees us. God knows us. God is there. Uh, uh, you know, when you're saying, hey, what are we going to watch tonight? Um, God's part of that conversation. If you're a Christian, he's there with you. Uh, there is nothing wrong with having a fear and a healthy respect for God. It used to be a very, very rare thing for a church to be robbed or vandalized. Uh, people just didn't do that to the church. Nowadays, the church is the target. It's a different uh, mindset and a different culture. No fear of God. But if we understand God is sovereign, God is not only the creator of all things, but the sustainer and the controller, you see God there. Uh, There is a healthy fear of God that becomes our response. In the old days, there wasn't just the belief in God, but a belief in the sovereign God. I was talking with someone uh, this week about the, the little epistle of Jude. And Jude is a, a, a fearful type chapter. It's, it's not even a chapter. I said I always wanted to preach a sermon series on Jude because I had a pastor that used to say this, because Jude doesn't even have chapters. And this pastor, Dr. Tassel, would say, all right, turn in your Bibles to Jude. You pick the chapter, I'll pick the verse. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that because, you know, the verse is there. Uh, But Jude, if you look at it, talks about a sovereign God and a fear of God. Verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They blaspheme all that they do not understand. Why is it so easy 
to make jokes about God, to take God's name in vain, to throw that out there, to, to treat God so flippantly because you don't understand God. And, and we, we know that the more we understand God, the more we see God as sovereign, uh, there's a holy, healthy fear. Jude goes on to say, but you must re- remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, quote, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. One of the translations says, save others with fear, snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Uh, It is not wrong to say God is holy. It is not wrong to look at Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and treat it not just as a... uh, significant document in American literature, but to say it is a spiritual document and there is a God and you should fear God. Fear God. My former attitude towards my dad's testimony. Uh, dad, dad was a kid and back then, you know, you didn't have TVs in the home. You sure didn't have, you know, VCRs or look this up. And, and so, it was a, a kind of a great thing to watch a, a, a movie, a reel-to-reel. And, and apparently they had something with all the, the kids and all the churches around there, and they showed them. And Dad, Dad was trying to tell us how, what God did when God saved him. And he said, they showed this movie about hell, and I didn't want to, go, to go to hell, so I got saved. And he told me that at a time when I was at some of my most smarmiest in my, my little gospel sophistication. And I thought, oh, wow, that's not, uh, why doesn't dad talk about Jesus and the love of, and then I read this part about Jude later on, and I was so ashamed of myself about my dad's testimony. Uh, Some save with fear, snatching them out of the fire. Yes, there is a heaven to be gained, and we love to talk about that. There is a Jesus who saves. Yes, saves from what? If not heaven, then what? And we can't stop talking about what the Bible talks about, and and there needs to be a fear of God in people's lives. And as we understand that God is sovereign, there is one judge. There is one judgment day. Every single person, whoever they are, whatever they did here, Whoever they are, every person stands. What does the Bible say? We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will say to those uh, who are sheep, go to my right hand. Those who are the goats on the left hand, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Can't that be the cause of fear? And is there not an understanding of God's sovereignty on this earth and after earth that provokes a godly fear? Nothing wrong with saying, I respect God. Uh, 
nothing wrong with saying, I'm not going to just treat God and smack him on the back. Hey, God, good to see you, old buddy, old pal. Sorry I haven't been keeping in touch and responding to your emails, but hey, God. Uh, there is something about Jesus as friend that is absolutely true, but there is also biblically a holy, healthy respect and fear of the one who is holy other and the rest of us just being creatures. And as we understand that, there'll be a respect and a holy fear of God that matters, that's part of our attitude. I'm going to stop laughing at people and caricaturizing people who urge repentance and who say you're out of line if you want to be right with the holy God. Sometimes I laugh too much along with the world in my gospel sophistication. What about believers? We don't have to fear God anymore once we become Christians, do we? Not in the same way, no. Not in the same way. Not in the same way we did when our souls were on the line. And yet there is an understanding of God as our sovereign. There's no terror anymore, which there should be for the unbeliever. If you're not a Christian, you should be terrified. Shake in your shoes. Be terrified if you're not a Christian. You have an appointment, not just with death, but you have an appointment with the one beyond death. Be terrified. Christians, you don't have to be terrified. God loved you. Jesus experienced that hell for you. But there is a healthy understanding, respect, that God is sovereign and God is your God. And God saved you for something. Why else would Paul say in Philippians, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. God's still serious. Our Christian lives get to be joyful and serious. Aslan was not a tame lion, but for those who belong to him, he was safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's not a tame lion. So we're not talking about a servile fear here. But we are saying fear God. Listen to Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declared the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, God says. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is saying that is a desirable thing, to take his word seriously, and not just as a, I think I'll wear it today and I won't wear it tomorrow. Putting on Christ means putting on Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's listing all of these things that are part of the Christian life. And in verse 17, it's just one verse in the midst of several. I'll just read the one verse. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And fear God is right there as a thing that Christians do as they live in Christian's life. The fear of God. There's an attitude uh, as we understand God's sovereignty and we just naturally start to say, God's a big God. And I'm going to respect the big God. And I'm going to love the big God. Um, I was talking to a, a friend of mine about something and 
And, and he commented, and I just emailed him, and I said, you know, God is the boss, but he's a good boss. He said, I like how you reminded me that God's the boss. God is in charge of my life circumstances. God is. Uh, he's a benevolent boss. He's not an undercover boss. We know who he is. Tells us all about himself. But God's in charge of God's world. Fear God. That's what he brings us to. Uh, I don't have to tell you to do it because if you're a Christian, that's what you're going to be doing is you know more about him. And that's just, when you catch your, I should say it this way, when you catch yourself fearing God, that's part of being a Christian and growing as a Christian. The next attitude that God's child will have as he or she contemplates God's sovereignty is this, an attitude of implicit obedience. An irreverence, a lack of understanding of sovereignty leads to disobedience. Even in our world anymore, we can't have um, real discussions on morals and morality um, and have this common base because it's gone. And if there's an irreverence or a flippancy toward God, you can't appeal even to a common standard. Listen to somebody who was just didn't understand God's sovereignty and think about where it ended up. Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And do you remember how that worked out for Pharaoh? Who's the Lord? I don't even know the Lord. Why should I listen to what the Lord has to say? But for the Christian who knows the Lord, who knows the sovereignty of God, there's an obedience that we want to have toward God. Are you inclined to mimic the words of Pharaoh when you know God is making a demand on you? Are you inclined, am I inclined to say, well, who's the Lord that I should listen to his voice? There's a word for that attitude in Hebrew. It's called death wish. It's actually not the word, but there is a death wish that you have when you say, who's the Lord? I'm going to do my own thing. Pharaoh was about to learn something about God's sovereignty. I hope we don't have to learn the hard way. Think of Psalm 119, the attitude from the man who knew God to be sovereign. Uh, The man, David, who knew God to be sovereign, who wrote Psalm 119 that we read through, had a love and a respect for God's word and said, I want to line myself up as a believer in God, as a Christian, though he wouldn't have used that that phrase, but as God's man, as God's Christian, I got to line myself under God's word in an attitude of saying, I'm going to obey God. A.W. Pink wrote this, once the sovereignty of the author of the word is apprehended, it will not longer be a matter of picking and choosing from the precepts and statutes of that word, selecting those which meet with our approval but it will be seen that nothing less than an unqualified and wholehearted submission becomes the creature. This is going to be hard, but I'm going to obey God. I want to obey this part of God's commands because that's easier for me with my temperament and my circumstances, but I'm going to obey God here. I'm going to forsake not the assembling of myself together. I'm going to look at God as as a steward, as sovereign, and I'm steward of what he gives me. I'm going to I'm going to treat my wife a certain way as a Christian should 
man should treat his wife. I'm going to treat my husband and my kids and my parents. I'm going to live as a Christian because God says to. Why? Because God is sovereign, and I fear him, and I want to obey him. He gave us all of these uh, things in Scripture of, of, and, and commands and directives to obey him, but there's also so many examples of people who did in face of, of, of utter chaos, and it worked out right for them. I can't help but think, and I, I mentioned this a couple of sermons ago, and I forget who I was talking to, but somebody said, I love that, that, that story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego in the fiery furnace where they said, I'm going to obey you, God. I'm not going to bow down to the world. I'm going I'm to, to not give my knee there. I'm going to give my submission to God. And, and, and oh, oh, king, even if we do die in the furnace, that's okay. And we, we're going to obey God. There may be a time coming in our culture where, where you're called on to say, I'm going to stand for what's right. I'm going, to, I'm going to obey because the Bible says to do this. You might have faced it at work where people have liked you because of your Christian uh, ethics and, and your, your work hard and you do all that, but then t- time comes to do one little thing of fudging. And, and, and the same Christianity that propels you to be a good worker also makes you say, no, this isn't right. We can't do this as a company. And all of a sudden, they hate your Christianity for that. Um, you obey God no matter what. I'm going to obey God. Why? Because I know God is sovereign. God is sovereign and I fear him. God is sovereign and I obey him. In addition to the attitude of godly fear and the attitude of implicit obedience, you, the Christian who understands that God is sovereign, will cultivate an attitude of entire resignation to God. Murmuring is thrown out the window. What God ordains is good because it's God who ordained it. For we understand God's loving sovereignty, we have an attitude that if we plan our work and work our plan, then we have a right to success. I did everything right, so God's got to do this. And we look at, at Christianity and the world as a formula. But as we understand God's sovereignty, we say, sometimes things don't go according to that plan. Not an authority on the writings of Malcolm Gladwell. I probably don't agree with everything he ever wrote, but he wrote this one book that I listened to one time. And uh, the articles I've seen in The Atlantic that he's written have been, have been good and interesting and thought-provoking. I, I enjoy Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called Outliers. And, and that book... Um, when I saw it for a dollar at the library sale, I even bought it for Paula and said, read it. <laughs> um, but um, uh, the book talks, he asks some interesting questions like, why are NHL hockey players, why are the most successful ones predominantly born in three months out of the year? And he answers that. He asked a question of why are the Korean airline pilots and in their safety record, why is there such a disparity between that and American pilots? He did a great study on uh, the Hatfields and McCoys and, and Yankees and Southerners and Tess. It's a very fascinating book, uh, but the chapter on the Beatles was interesting to me. And what he said was there are three things that make people successful in life. Just this is a non, I believe, a non-believer. I haven't heard him say anything explicitly that, that makes me think he's a Christian, but I haven't seen explicitly I hate God stuff either. But he said there's three things. There's a talent, there's hard work, combined with what some would call luck 
what some would call fate. And he said, uh, obviously the talent was there. Obviously going to Hamburg, Germany and playing session after session, week after week, day after day, night after night, they honed their craft. But there also had to be this factor in there. Uh, the time had to be right culturally for that type of music for those people. And that's the unknown. There's a lot of talented people. There's a lot of hardworking people. There's a lot of talented, hardworking people. But you know, there's that even the world says, and if all truth is God's truth, which it is, even the, the world recognizes there's something that you can't put your finger on. And we Christians can put our finger on, we can say that's God. And whatever God ordains or chooses not to ordain, our attitude as people knowing God's sovereignty is one of entire resignation to God. Some people say it's a lucky break and you make your own luck. Not true. God is sovereign even in the circumstances. One of our doctors, um, he was a doctor, he was a nurse, he was a professional guy. Daughter had stepped on a nail. We had her in. She, she, was, she was playing. This is our oldest daughter. She was playing in the house next, and it was a housing development that was being built. She stepped on a nail. It was great. He, she, she came. She, she's limping and hopping with her nail in her foot, and, and I'm getting ready to take her in. There's a little blood on there, and she goes, Dad, now I know how Jesus felt. Now I know how Jesus felt. She was like three years old or four years old, and now I know how Jesus felt. And so we took her in, and, and this doctor was from Australia, and, and I said, I told the story because I wanted, I wanted to use it as a way to kind of witness or even talk about Jesus or introduce Jesus into the conversation. And that Australian doctor or nurse, whoever he was, he said, that's doctrinal. That's doctrinal. And uh, we started, it turns out he was a Christian. He appreciated that doctrinal statement of our daughter. And I said, well, how did you, how did you get to be here? And he said, well, he said, if a group of American GIs driving a, a jeep around a corner hadn't stopped and one of them whistled at a group of Australian young girls out there. My mom and dad would never meet because that was my dad who whistled. That was my mom who appreciated that. Uh, that, that. And, and there they are and here I am and I know God now. And, and he talked about how just all these weird circumstances happen. And what we call those is God's sovereignty. We say God is in charge. And if God's in charge of those little offhand things that happen, uh, uh, Kids used to call it random. I don't know if I hear the word random so much anymore, but those random things are not random things with God's sovereignty. And so what we can do, understanding that God is in charge, even of what we call random, we can have an attitude of entire resignation to God's plan. We can say, if God's in charge of the plan, I resign myself to my loving God and his plan. Reminded myself to read this slowly. I wish I could write like this. If I could write it or rewrite it or rearrange the words and do a better job, I would have just done it. But listen to this. We are apt to regard our possessions as ours unconditionally. We feel that when we have prosecuted our plans with prudence and diligence, that we are entitled to success. That when by dint of hard work, we have accumulated a competence we deserve to keep and enjoy it. That when we are surrounded by a happy family, no power may lawfully enter the charmed circle and strike down a loved one. 
And if in any of these cases, disappointment, bankruptcy, death actually comes, the perverted instinct of the human heart is to cry out against God. But in the one who by grace has recognized God's divine sovereignty, such murmuring is silenced. And instead there is a bowing to the divine will and an acknowledgement that he has not afflicted us as sorely as we deserve. A true recognition of God's sovereignty will avow God's perfect right to do with us as he wills. The one who bows to the pleasure of the Almighty will acknowledge his absolute right to do with us as seemeth him good. If he chooses to send poverty, sickness, domestic bereavements, even while the heart is bleeding at every pore, it will say, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Often there will be a struggle, for the carnal mind remains in the believer to the end of his earthly pilgrimage. But though there may be a conflict within his breast, nevertheless, to the one who has really yielded himself to this blessed truth, there will presently be heard that voice saying, as of old it said to the turbulent Gennesareth, Peace be still. And the tempestuous flood within will be quieted and subdued. The subdued soul will lift a tearful but confident eye to heaven and say, Thy will be done. Listen to that. What demand do we have on God's sovereignty? How much smarter are we than God? If God had only done this, then it would have been so much better for that. Who can say that to God? Biblical example, Eli in 1 Samuel 3. Samuel says to that old priest, the ark will be taken and your sons Hophni and Phinehas will be killed. And he knows Hophni and Phinehas are not ready to meet their maker. That was the line that got to me. He knew they weren't ready to meet their maker. He knew his sons would be killed. He knew God had spoken it to that little boy Samuel. And he still responded like this in verse 18 of chapter 3. So Samuel told Eli everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And that's not held up as a bad statement. That's held up as a good statement. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. God is sovereign. God does good. We submit our wills and our life circumstances to God. Somebody says, I can't catch a break. That's our way of saying, I can't catch a break. Every time, I, I almost, I'm almost there. We, we all probably have those circumstances. We probably say that about ourselves. Just, oh, just on the verge. If only the housing market had been just this, at that point instead of this. And now I'm, well, who's the boss of the housing markets in any century? Another biblical example, of course, is Job. Job 1. 20, 21, and 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And he didn't stop there. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Our plans are submitted to God's will. I know people who are sticklers that sticklers for this. 
God willing, we will do this. God willing. Blossom, who used to attend here, from she was a preacher's kid from, she was 80 when she was here, and she moved back up to, up to uh, uh, Canada, but she was from Jamaica. And Blossom would always, she'd say it a little, I remember it because she said it different. We always say God willing. She would always say God's willing. God's willing was how it must be how they said it in Jamaica. God willing. Listen to this. Your plans submitted to God's will. James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Uh, Scripture's saying it's evil to not say, uh, at least with the attitude, if the Lord wills, this will happen. So whatever, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The right thing to do. In this instance, the right thing is to acknowledge that God is sovereign and resign our lives to his sovereignty. We've said over and over again, uh, just through, through a little tiny church plant in, in New England, which is hostile ground, my old Alabama guy that I, I quote, remember I quote this Alabama guy and who says, it's all in the mind of God, Dave, it's all in the mind of God. I was emailing back and forth with him and he said, here's what I remember you saying, Dave. Planting a church in New England is like plowing concrete. <laughs> he said that somehow that phrase always stuck with me. He said that always stuck with me. I never forgot that phrase, Dave, when you said it's like plowing concrete. But we've had a time. And, and, and boy, some of us who've been here, uh, we've said this church will not last any longer and God wants it to last, it will not close any time before God wants it to close. God is sovereign, and we, we do our best, and we plan, and we do everything, but we trust it all to a good, sovereign God. So three things so far, then we're going to go fast through the next couple. Three things. One is, when you understand God's sovereignty, you do what? Your attitude is what? Your attitude is one of godly fear. Your attitude is also one of implicit obedience. Your attitude is also going to be one uh, where you look at God and you say, my plans are God's plans. Um, Entire resignation of your plans. Next week, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving. And boy, that is one that happens. We become thankful people when we see God as sovereign. Just real quick. um, Uh... The joy set before Jesus when he finished his race. The race that's set before us in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 I'm referring to. We have a race set before us. There was a race set before Jesus. Jesus ran that race even though it included going to the cross and and paying for the joy set before him. He ran that race. And the implied thing is we can run our race with joy no matter what happens because God has a plan and we know how it ends up. For us, the Christians. Finally, one of adoring worship. And I put that quote in the worship folder for us there. Uh, The more you understand God's sovereignty, the more you will worship him. To adore God because God is infinitely wise. God cannot make a mistake. And God's got you in his plan. He's got you in the palm of his hand. And we adore God and we worship God. Boy, we, we say and submit ourselves to God in joyful worship. There's a song, it's in our, our hymn, book, hymn book, it's a more of a contemporary hymn. Rejoice in the Lord, he makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. 
For when I'm tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. And we have that attitude, that response to the God who saved us. He knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. Along with giving you the gift of salvation, along with forgiving your sins, along with opening your eyes so you could see your need for repentance, along with with bringing you to to the cross and, and that dependence that you have on Jesus Christ. He's given you increasingly to understand that God, that he is sovereign. And we get to live as Christians, as people who understand this, more and more. It's a good thing. It's a joyous thing. You're a Christian. If you were troubled by anything in the news or anything, you go to the doctor and, and he says, hey, you know, sit down, I got some news for you. Um, Somebody says you gotta have to have a, a, a shock here. Uh, you relive the knock on the door and somebody there that you don't recognize talking to you. All of those things. As a Christian, even being prepared now and understanding, God is sovereign. God is loving. God's gonna do what's right, and God cares about you. And you are part of God's wonderful plan. And it all ends up with you crossing that river and going to heaven when you die. Uh, that's God. We can, we can take it. There's stuff we don't want to have to take. Just as we transition right to the table, you read through, say, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you get, you get past David, you get past Solomon and building the temple and all that, and then the kingdom's split, and there's Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and then there's all these people, uh, Omni and this guy and uh, Jehoshaphat or whatever their names were and all that. And you read the spiraling of history. Some were good. Some were bad. Some loved God. Some hated God. Some, and all these people just caught up in all of that. But God's people were God's people all the way through. Don't worry about these external circumstances so much. You can be involved in affecting them, and God's called you to that. Then do that. You can speak up. Do that. But don't live your life by what's going on secularly. God has helped much better people uh, than, than, than me, for sure. And, and I, I'm going to even insult you along with me and say, God's helped better people than you, you and me. And he's, he's helped them through harder times. And he's given the strength because we are the apple of his eye. So don't, boy, don't let the, don't let the news dictate your attitude toward life and toward what God's doing. God's God. God's been there. Your soul is going to be forever and ever, and it's only going to be just a breath here on this earth. Uh, so you be joyful. You're saved. You can have every strength to encounter everything that comes your way. And we can do it. Not if it was just us trying to do it together, we could last for so long. But it's the Lord helping us live for him as, as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. We get to be Christians. Wow, not everybody gets to be a Christian in this earth. You do. Be joyful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for for this thing that we call Christianity, that you call the gospel, the salvation that you've given to your people through Jesus Christ. Thank you that whoever responds uh, in faith, repents of their sins, and and places their faith in in Jesus as as their... uh, sacrifice as their, as their atoning work 
is made right with you. We thank you that everyone who comes uh, to you through Jesus will not be cast out. And we thank you for salvation. We thank you for everything that is behind us. We thank you for everything we're going through now. We thank you for everything that's ahead, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, Lord. We thank you that you are sovereign and that we get to be Christians in this world, your world. In Jesus' name, amen.